Today in our study through the parable of the prodigal son, we look at the older brother who perhaps has gotten a a bum rap, maybe a bum rap. You may very well be far more like the older brother than you recognize. One of the most important principles of studying God's Word is to let it speak as God intended it to speak. You see, we can get ourselves in the way, especially the longer time goes by and traditions and certain ideas. We begin to see Scripture first through those filters, through those assumptions, and we tend to interpret them favorably towards our pre-existing ideas. Even more dangerous is the idea that Scripture is something that what it says can vary based on each of our individual experience of it. The common phrase often in those circles is, this is what it says to me, as though the Bible is a multiple choice set of ideas. The question when we come to God's Word is never first, what does it say to me? The question ought to be, what does it say? God had something in mind when he communicated it. And so now we have been studying it. This is our third week on Sunday morning. This week, those of you that are in life groups and hope that others of you will join in, there's still room in those life groups. You'll be looking at it for your third time together. And it would be easy to allow previous ideas to dominate instead of looking at it for what Jesus had in mind when he spoke. And so as you're thinking through this and as certain questions come up, The thing I want to encourage you, and we're going to do it every Sunday, and I want to encourage you in your life groups to do, is to remember the context. Remember the setting in which Jesus is teaching these things, because the setting reveals everything. What we have in the setting that prompted three parables in Luke 15 is Jesus before two very distinct groups, the religious, the good, the moral people of that culture that are designated as the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. These were the good people, and they were there with tax collectors and the sinners. Jesus seemed to attract that group to him, and so at the beginning of Luke 15, we see the good people, the moral people, muttering is the word. And this is what they were basically saying to Jesus. Why do you associate with lost people? Because that's who the sinners and the tax collectors were, alienated from God. They were away from the Father's house. And out of that come three parables about lostness. Today, I want you to focus on this idea. Jesus is helping the Pharisees in particular understand what true lostness is. And these stories, in particular the third story, which we're spending most of our time on, the lost son, is a category-busting story. Jesus is introducing a very different category about what it means to be lost. And so what we're going to do today is look at, first of all, what that category of lostness is that Jesus is trying to get across. Then we're going to talk about how do you recognize that lostness, Third, what are we supposed to do about it? And then fourth, I want to take a couple minutes and just talk about the implications of this teaching to us at the journey. So the first point that we're going to address is this new understanding of lostness. Let me ask you a question. Do you now see 
that in this story by Jesus, the master storyteller, that both brothers are alienated from the father. You have the younger brother. He doesn't really care about the father himself or his relationship or the love of the father. He doesn't want any of that. He wants the father's stuff. And so his way of being alienated from the father is to leave. That's the easy one to see. But do you also see that both the one who left and the one who stay are focused on the father's things? That, that is what we see when we see the elder brother. He refuses to join the father on arguably the greatest day of his life. He doesn't care about that. He sees the fatted calf. He's never been rewarded for his faithfulness and his hard work, and he's upset about that. He doesn't really care about the father's heart, does he? He cares about what he thinks he deserves, and it leaves him as a result out by his own choice from the feast. And the feast is the feast of salvation. It's the feast of grace. So we have two types of lostness. There are two sons, one very, very bad and one very, very good, and both alienated from the father. So remember the setting. We have in front of Jesus as he's teaching both of these brothers represented, and that's the important thing. What some of us are tempted to do is to look at these brothers, one as an insider and one as an outsider. The younger son is the one who needs grace, and the older son is the one who has to learn grace because he's an insider. That's not what Jesus is getting at. And as long as you do that, you will misunderstand the elder brother and you will wrestle with the things that we've wrestled with in our life groups. For instance, this common question that has come up, well, then why live a good life at all? That's not so much the point. The point is that living a good life in itself solves nothing in terms of our relationship with the Father. In fact, living a good life can put us in the most difficult place to find true relationship with the Father. So what Jesus has in front of him are both types of brothers, he has, of course, the younger brothers, the tax collectors and sinners, those who have abandoned God. But he also has the elder brothers, the Pharisees, the teachers of the laws, those that have sought to live good, model, moral lives, perhaps many of them with the very best of intentions. See, what he's saying to them is that all of them are on level ground in terms of their alienation from the Father. And therefore, what he's presenting to these very religious, very devout, and probably very good people is a whole different idea of lostness that includes them. So in the end, what we have is an interesting scenario. We have the bad son who is saved, and then the parable ends with the good son outside the feast of salvation, clearly alienated from the father. And that's how Jesus ends the story. Now, you might say, well, we don't really know what happens. We, we, we don't know what happens after the story ends. The, 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 the good son may have come around and gone in. No, you have to understand, it's not a real-life thing. This is a story that Jesus is telling. There is nothing more than when the story ends. It's done. So we have the bad son, the rebellious son, coming and finding grace, finding salvation, finding restoration with the Father. And we have the good son out in alienation. See, that is startling to Jesus' listeners of his day, and perhaps startling to you. Maybe you have been a very devout Christian or devout religious person, and when you hear what I'm suggesting Jesus is getting at, and I think that as we've studied it, you can see clearly that that is the case. 
maybe you're going, that's just unsettling to me. Exactly. It ought to be unsettling to you. In one sense, what we've done is turned Christianity into a religion that Jesus never intended. Religion says, I can work hard enough, I can live good enough in order to deserve God's favor. Jesus never intended his mission to produce any such set of ideas. Yeah, if, if you're the type that feels that, yeah, I'm better than most people, I deserve more from God, then, yeah, this is startling to you. And you may be very well the one that Jesus is lovingly speaking to, just like I believe he was lovingly speaking to the Pharisees at this point. The point here is that there are two ways to be lost, one by being very bad, but the other is by being very good. You say, what? Yeah. John 14, 6, what is it that Jesus said? I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. You see, Christ teaches that we can either look to Jesus for our salvation or we can look to something else. And if we look to anything else, even moral living, we're missing the whole point. We're either looking to Jesus to make us right with God. He is the way. He's the path to life. He's the only key to the Father. Or we're looking for it by ourselves. In the end, what you really see, if you boil it down, is that the younger son is clearly separate from God, and that's self-indulgence. But the older son is equally separate from God, and that's self-righteousness, self-justification. How many of you have seen the movie Chariots of Fire? A phenomenal story. And there are two primary characters that I think help us understand the difference between the elder brother and true faith. I think the elder brother is really represented by, by a man named Harold Abrams. It's a true story about the Olympics. Harold Abrams is a sprinter, very driven, very competitive. And one day is asked, what is it that drives you? Why is this so important to you? And this is what he said. When that gun goes off, I have 10 seconds to justify my reason for existence. That is the elder brother. What he does is his justification, his value. Why he deserves is rooted in what he does. See, what is it that you use to justify yourself with? Because we all do. We're all tempted to justify our value based on being a good husband or wife, mom, dad, good child, good student, successful Working hard, being a good person. What is it that you find value by? That may very well be the crutch that keeps you from understanding your lostness. I'm good enough, and so I deserve it. See, that's the idea here. So why does Jesus end with the younger son saved and the, and the elder son lost? Because it's easy to understand. If, if you're a younger son, if you've been the rebellious one, it's easy for a younger son to understand their need for grace. When you're in the pig's pen, <laughs> when you're in therapy, when you're in debt up to your ears, when you've ruined your relationships, when you're in trouble with the law, when you're in a mess, it's easy to understand your need for grace. That's where you'll find younger brothers. But where do you find elder brothers? You find them here. I'm not, no pointing fingers. Elder brothers are in churches. 
They're in synagogues. They're in mosques. They're in temples. So because of that, it's much harder to detect and understand elder brother lostness. I think the text helps us see at least three ways that you can detect elder brother lostness, and we're going to look at them there in verses 28 through 30. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, and so he called one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. Precious story. So much to learn. Today, we're going to focus on this elder brother and pull out three ways that you can detect what we're terming elder brother lostness. The first is an undercurrent of anger. Elder brothers have an undercurrent of anger throughout most of their life. What is it he says? Verse 28, he became angry and refused to go in. Why? Because, verse 29, I've never disobeyed you. You see, if you believe that because of your goodness, your hard work, your decency, that God owes you a good life, then you'll spend much of your life angry. Because life never goes the way you think it ought to. Angry at yourself, angry at other people, and certainly at some point, disappointed and angry with God. See, I think this is the moment of crisis for the elder brother. He's been going along his plan of being a good son, a good, hardworking person, believing that it would make him deserving. Now, he comes to this point where he sees a scenario with his father that breaks that whole doctrine by which he's been living his whole life. And what happens when he sees someone that he feels doesn't deserve what he's getting? What does he do? He gets angry, and he basically says to his dad, what's the matter with you, Father? How often have you seen people going along, hardworking Christians, hardworking at their Christian life, and then they face crisis, and their anger towards God becomes a huge issue of faith? Have you seen that? I deserve better than this. It's a crisis of faith that should never have happened because they see God and their relationship with him as a means to an end. The second thing that we see is what Tim Keller calls duty without beauty. I love that expression. Here's what he says in verse 29. Look, all these years I've been, and what's the word he uses? Slaving for you. That betrays a lot. Let me paraphrase what I think he's saying. He's saying, all of my life I've obeyed you, but it's all been a grind. Elder brothers do the right thing, even religiously. But there's very little joy in it. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of expectation. Keller says, elder brothers find God useful. But true children of God, gospel-believing Christians, find God 
beautiful. And this is the difference between an elder brother and why the elder brother serves and a true gospel-believing child of God. An elder brother serves because he finds it useful as a means to an end. A gospel-believing Christian serves because of their love and gratitude to a gracious God. Another character in the film Chariots of Fire is the primary character, Eric Liddell. Eric's a committed Christian, and the plot of the movie is largely based on his refusal to run his race on the Sabbath and how somehow that situation is redeemed. He's allowed to run in a different race where he wins his gold. See, you have Harold Abrams who is driven out of brokenness, and he's a high achiever. He's one of the best runners in the world, but all out of brokenness, all out of a need to justify himself. And here you have this Eric Little who just seems to have these gifts that, that Abrams has, but it's effortless, and he's filled with joy. And when Little is asked about why he would run and why he would go to the Olympics because he had made a commitment to serve as a missionary, and instead he dropped those plans to go and run, and his Christian brothers and sisters said to him, why would you do this? Why would you drop everything just to go and run? Here's what he said. I believe God made me for a purpose but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Why, why do true followers of Jesus live good lives? Because we feel God's pleasure in it. We do the right thing not as a means to our end, not because we find it useful for our goals. We do the right thing out of love for God and so that what we find beautiful in him is reflected in us. Elder brothers live good lives because of what they hope to receive from God out of it. So duty without beauty. And then the third thing, the first is an underlying pattern of anger and disappointment. The second thing is duty without beauty. Let me just hit, hit that again. One way that you can detect elder, elder brother lostness is in prayer. You see, a person who's an elder brother prays to God and you see very little heartfelt adoration in prayer, very little time just delighting in the presence of God. Prayer is a means to receive, to get God on their agenda. The third marker is religious, cultural, and class superiority. Look at what he says in verse 30. This son of yours. The father clearly has taken him back, but he's not willing to take him back. He's your son, but he's no longer my brother. When we live our lives in such a way that it is how we prove that we're deserving, we are constantly judging ourselves, but also constantly judging others. We look at them and we say, well, you're deserving. You're not deserving because we don't understand grace. That's what elder brother lostness looks like, according to Jesus. What do we do about it if there is a way to be lost by being and trying to be very, very good? And how do we remedy it? I want to suggest just a couple of things. And the first thing I want to say is that the thing that we should never do is to take these ideas and based on that, look at one another within the faith community and decide who's in and who isn't. You know, you have elder brotherishness. I see a lot of anger in you, latent anger, a lot of judgmentalism. The minute we do that, what are we? 
We're, we're the elder brother. We can never use this as a tool to judge one another, but what we certainly can do is judge ourselves, being open to looking at our heart. I believe that Jesus' intention here was for very good people, very well-meaning people in religious circles, even in Christianity, to look at themselves and recognize that perhaps they have been depending their entire Christian experience on measuring up, doing the right thing, being deserving. And maybe if you look deep enough, you'll recognize that even though you can articulate grace, you've never truly come under God's grace. You're still justifying yourself. And that's why, for me, elder brother lostness is the hardest one to get saved from because it's the hardest one for us to recognize our need, our need for grace. So I got two questions as we start here. One, is it possible that you have elder brother lostness, that you have found Christianity without finding Christ, that you serve and you gather for prayer and you attend faithfully and you make a difference in people's lives, but in fact, all of that is a means to self-justification? And is it possible that like the elder brother, you're outside of the feast of salvation? because you've yet to come to terms with your true lostness, your separation from the Father, which all your good deeds will never make up for, because all of us ultimately sin. We all fall short. But there's a second possibility, and that is that you're a true committed follower of Jesus, and you have elder brotherishness. So often we come to the idea of grace and we go, yeah, I want that. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, by grace we are saved, not of works. It's a gift of God so that no man should boast. And we accept that and then we don't understand our security, what grace has really birthed in us. And so we spend the rest of our Christian experience trying to justify why God saved us. And so you can be a true blood-bought child of God who has come and experienced new birth in Christ and yet you have elder brotherishness because you're still judging others. You're still judging your worthiness, measuring God. And then I want to suggest a way that the text helps us respond. And that is by looking at the radical heart of God. The radical seeking and saving heart of God. Now, I want to point something out here to you. We have three parables in this chapter. In each parable, there is something lost. There is a devoted seeker who sets everything aside in order to go out and find what was lost. And then when it is found, there's a party. There's rejoicing in heaven every time what is lost is found. In the third parable, one of the interesting distinctives is that when the younger son goes off, the father does not run after him. So where is the seeking in the third parable? It's with the elder brother. Do you see what he does? The father leaves the party of salvation, the most important day of his life. He humbles himself and does what no respected man in the community would ever have to do, to go out humbly to beseech his son. And he seeks him. 
You see what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees here? He's not calling them enemies. He's saying, I'm coming to seek even you. When he says, my son, the Greek word is technon, and it literally means my child. You see, he's speaking with love and affection. This is the heart of the father. He doesn't see elder brother lostness as a greater thing to be condemned over younger brother lostness. He just sees lost, and he sees loved, and he humbles himself and comes out and seeks and offers grace and invites into the feast of salvation. Let's just look for a couple minutes at at us at the journey and how besides your own spiritual journey, I mean, mean, frankly, it could actually be some of you today might recognize the latent anger, the judgmentalism, the duty that's in your experience with no joy, and you might recognize a lostness in you that your religious pursuit of Christianity has not met. And this could be the day that you hear the Father inviting you into grace. And you experience the beauty of that grace and it truly transforms you and makes you right with the Father. But for the rest of us, how do we respond as those that say, I know grace, I've experienced grace. I was lost and I am found. Here's a few things for us that I think is important to think about. One of the things Jesus is getting at is that gospel-believing Christians love the poor and the broken. And therefore, we, if we're going to be true followers of Jesus, need to be invested in, we need to be deeply involved in the lives of broken people. And you know how we should do that and why we should do that? Because we recognize that we are no different than they are. That's the difference. Sometimes churches, Christians, can be very elder brotherish towards the needy around us because we posture ourselves as condescending, helping them out of the goodness of our hearts, when in fact, we are them. So we need to be deeply invested in broken people. And secondly, the thing that we can never do inside this church, the thing you can never do and be a gospel child of God is just hobnob with your own ilk with people of your own level of spiritual maturity, with people of your own standard of living. God forbid that we would ever be that judgmental, even within the body. We are all, apart from the grace of God, hopelessly lost. But we are all object of God's love. He has sought us all out. He has invited us into his salvation. And we need to be that, the hands and feet of Jesus. So as we come to the Lord's table today, what a wonderful opportunity to use this gift that Jesus gave us to allow God to bring home this message, the message that Jesus was desperately trying to get forward to his first listeners and also to us today. And so I'm gonna invite you to just look at yourself for a few moments and allow what we've heard today to speak into your heart, speak deeply into your heart. Perhaps you recognize in your heart elder brother lostness today. Perhaps you hear me 
talking about it. You hear the words of Scripture addressing it, and now suddenly it seems very familiar to you and to your experience. That somewhere you've known that you're not operating out of a sense of intimacy with the Father, that your Christianity is something out of duty, and you're left discouraged and bitter because it hasn't worked out the way you expect, and perhaps you find yourself judging yourself supremely and maybe being judgmental of others. Maybe you need to hear Jesus seeking you like he was seeking the Pharisees. Maybe you need to do that and come to faith today. And others of you, as Christians, I'm going to challenge you to root out this judgmentalism, this need to achieve and be validated and recognize that that has no place in a gospel community. And in the same way Christ sought you out, just humbly express gratitude that he sought you out through the cross of Jesus, through the shed blood, through the body that was bruised for us. And by that means alone, we have been made right with the Father. Renew that gratitude and renew a commitment to living out that grace towards broken people around us. Jesus invites us to the table of mercy. Please come.